If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find the book of Exodus, the 20th chapter. And if you're thinking, boy, is this a new series? It is, and yet we're in the same book. We are beginning our series on the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. And a happy birthday to the United States of America as we celebrate our 244th birthday of the Declaration of Our Freedom as a Country. And uh, so a lot, a lot of fireworks. Is it, was it just me or is it like, oh my goodness, there's like an enormous amount of fireworks here. All, I mean, until, I mean, please, after midnight, dial it down, will you please? But it was a lot of fun, just the same. 244 years as a country. At the same time, we are celebrating it in the midst of as much tension in this country as it has experienced really since perhaps the 60s, and a a revolution of sorts, and I don't want to overuse that term. I don't know if it's going to be that or not. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, let's not get too judgmental. Let's let's kind of reserve our, our thoughts until we can get this big view of everything. At the same time, be in prayer, earnest, earnest prayer. Truthfully, this is one of those things where this is We love the 4th of July, most of us, but if you're an African-American, you might say something like, well, that's not my day of freedom, and I would understand that. You might say, well, mine's January 1st, 1863. That's the day, that's the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, and I, I would get that. And I'm just saying this on this particular day as we begin our study of this Ten Commandments. I'm grateful for my freedom. Are you? I'm also thankful for the Emancipation Proclamation and the freedom that it finally gave the African-American 88 years later. And I'm grieved that our forefathers didn't act in a manner in keeping with that edict. Admittedly, admittedly easier said than done. I'm ashamed that subsequent laws over the years have inhibited many African-Americans from flourishing in the land of the free. And I know we're, there were, we're talking about other ethnicities, and I'll come back to that, but that is the focus of our day. I grieve at the tension and the fighting and the misunderstandings. And I think, for me personally, above all, the grotesque ignorance on both sides of whites and blacks in this crisis. I pray, and I pray that you'll pray with me as a church that civility will prevail, that interracial love will grow, and that justice one day will become truly blind, particularly in regards to race. And I can assure you this, and I'm talking to you here and those of you, the many of you that are watching online, I can assure you of this, that regardless of whether you are white or black whether you're Native American or Hispanic or Asian or multi-ethnic, in the life which is to come, judgment and justice will not be according to race. It'll be according to righteousness. And the Apostle Paul, as he concluded his epic message on Mars Hill and Athens to those Stoic And Epicureans said as much when he said, the times of ignorance, in Acts chapter 17, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. 
but now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world and say it. Righteousness by a man, that happens to be Jesus, whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, speaking of righteousness, we're beginning to study the Ten Commandments. Or, in Deuteronomy 4.13, it's simply called the Ten Words. The Ten Words of God. These are ten words from God. This is God's eternal standard of righteousness. Two tablets, two emphasis, vertical or horizontal, Godward, manward, the first four are toward God, the last six towards man. The Ten Commandments are God's principles of perfection. The hanging question in this COVID crisis that we live in, another aspect of our current tension, the current question is when. We're all asking when. When can we stop wearing our mask? When can we cease from social distancing? When can we start shaking hands and hugging? Please, when can we start shaking hands and hugging? That was just my little emphasis there. We ask the questions of when because we know there's a time when that's coming. Yet, to those who would question the relevance of the Ten Commandments today, when would it ever be permissible to worship another God? Erect images of God. Misuse God's name. When would it ever be permissible to lie, to murder, to commit adultery, to steal, or want your neighbor's stuff? What's the answer? Never. Because like God, these Ten Commandments are never changing aspects of God's righteousness and perfection. Now, true to form, the Jews took these Ten Commandments and they, made, they, they, they created 613 more commands that came out of it. That just wasn't good enough for them. 248 positive and 365, one for every day of the year, negative. Why is that? We've got to have more negative than positive commands. Actually, it's not unlike 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. There's actually more love is not than there is love is. Did you know that? Because that shows you a little bit about our human nature. It's inclined toward evil. But look in heaven, for those of you that are going there, and I don't presume upon all of you that you're going there, but to those of you who are in heaven, there'll never be an inclination toward evil. You'll never hear Jesus say love is not because you'll never be inclined to something that you shouldn't do that's not loving. Which prompted Johnny Erickson Tata, this great woman of God who as a teenager dove into, a, into the, a pool, broke her neck, has been a quadriplegic all of her life to say, I am looking forward to heaven not to get a new body but to get a new heart. A heart that's free from sin. The Ten Commandments are a call for a right understanding of God. You remember last week 
in chapter 19. This is all taking place around Mount Sinai. Moses goes up, gets them. Meantime, right after chapter 20, if you'll skip all the way down to verse 18, after the Ten Commandments, now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us. We'll listen. We don't want to hear from God lest we die. This was an awesome time. And the Ten Commandments give us an awesome view of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism many, many years ago asked the question, what is God? And just as a catechism, you memorize the answer to that. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And that is who God is. Now, Jesus shortened it. <laughs> he said this in John 4, around, after the woman at the well incident, he said, God is spirit, and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God wants our heads and our hearts to come together in worship. Spirit, that's the right heart, and truth, this is the word of God. We have to worship God. It's not just good feelings that bring us to God. The psalmist put it this way, the Lord is near to all who call upon him. And the rest of the verse says, to all who call upon him in truth. Have you ever read that? So God has always put those two things together, the head and the heart. And these are commands they're not options, they're not ideals, they're not ideas, they're not suggestions. Today we'll look at the first two. And let's, be, let's really be clear from the start. These commandments cannot be perfectly kept. Nobody has ever done it. Well, nobody in this room anyway. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, we're told, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law, and that's what this is, the Ten Commandments is the base point of the law. The purpose of the law is like a mirror to show us our sinfulness, to reveal our inadequacies, our need for God. So why study them if we can't keep them? Because... They'll help us to worship the one true God. And when that happens, you are truly free. Do you want to be free? I'm asking the question. Do you want to be free? Then you need to be like the psalmist who said, I will walk in freedom, for I have devoted myself to your commandments. Jesus said, if you know the truth, that truth will set you what? It'll set you free. So with that, Exodus 20, the first six verses, here they are. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And here's the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. And here's the second command. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or anything, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you want to be free to worship God? Then remember how he freed you and from where he freed you. I'm talking to those of you who have been freed by Jesus Christ and his cross. Secondly, refuse to worship other gods since they aren't, there aren't any other gods. And thirdly, resist making an image of God since God already has one. And we'll explain that. If you want to worship and be free to worship the living God, first remember how he freed you and from where he freed you. Did you see that in verse, verse 2? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Even before he begins the Ten Commandments, he reminds them of where they came from. Our greatest freedom is in Christ, right? Paul said to the Galatians, stand fast in the freedom from, from which Christ has set you free. And yet, and Exodus, Exodus 20 doesn't begin, doesn't start with the law. It starts with the gospel. Do you see this? Before he gets into the Ten Commands, or the Ten Commandments, he reminds them of their deliverance and from where they were delivered. Out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Or as the great Hebrew expositor Alex Motier said, the grace that saves preceded the law that demands. And that is the way it's always been. They weren't being told, these Jews weren't being told to obey God in order to be delivered. They were told to obey God because they'd been delivered. And it, how is it different with you and me? If anyone's in Christ, they're a, they're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And it's incumbent upon us by the grace of God in accordance with our deliverance and where we were delivered from to live for Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, the love of Christ compels me to live for him. Now, just the other day in one of our studies, we, we had somebody tell us that their child who's been getting educated, they're new Christians, but they're teaching their kids about the things of God, and they heard me preach last week about how we ought to fear God. And, and, and our, much of our obedience ought to come out of the fear of the Lord. And they said to their mother, I don't obey God because I fear him. I obey God because I love him. And she said, what, did I, what was I supposed to say to him? I said, nothing. <laughs> that was pretty good. It's, both are true. There's a tension here. We fear God and his awesomeness, but we love him for his nearness. Amen? And for what he's done for us in Christ. He's already delivered us if indeed we've been delivered. God reminds us, he reminds them that he brought them out of Egypt, out of that house of slavery. And by the way, this is the reason why we encourage those of you who know Christ to, be, to share your testimony. As I've said many times in the past, you don't have to have an incredible testimony, but you have to have a credible testimony. It's got to make sense. It doesn't matter if you were saved when you were five or 50. It's got to make sense. And when you share your testimony with others, it does two things. 
It, inform, it reinforms you. It reminds you and reinvigorates you about, and of, of the mercy of God in your life, how he took you out of your own personal house of slavery. It reminds me every time I talk to people about Jesus Christ of what I was detached from, what I was delivered from, what I was rescued from. And at the same time, I'm sharing the truth with them in the hopes that they'll come to know Jesus. Don't be afraid of your past. Your past should be a guidepost, not a hitching post. But it's got to be there. It sets up the contrast. The Apostle Paul said to the Colossians, he said, he has, he has delivered you from the kingdom of darkness and translated you into the king or into the kingdom of the son of his love. Have you ever read that? Colossians 1.13? That's what you're supposed to testify to. The problem is some of you don't show that. There's no, there's no mechanism of deliverance. There's no evidence of it. I made this comment, comment last week. I want to give it to you again. Sometimes who you were looks a lot like who you are. That little brain twister. Is that true of you? Sometimes who you were looks a lot like who you are. If that's the case, that's a problem. Those that we're trying to talk to about Jesus Christ need to see the contrast in our own life. They need to see the evidence of deliverance. And, and, and maybe it's because you don't realize that you're free. You have been free. You're no longer slaves to sin. The principle, the power of sin has been broken in your life if you know Christ. We were talking about this just the other day with, a, with a, some couples that have recently come to Christ, talking about the subject of baptism. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, what, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, certainly not, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Good question, right? So if you know Christ is your Savior, you've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. The life which you now live in the flesh Flesh, you should be living by the faith of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Amen? That's the way it should be. Again, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Have you died to sin? I, I, I saw this, this cartoon many years ago, and it makes me chuckle every time I see it. It's an older, there are uh, some older couples, they're having a Bible study together, and the gal in the polka dot dress says, they're studying Romans 6, and she says, well, I haven't actually died to sin, but I did feel kind of faint once. <laughs> I just, this just makes me laugh every time. The truth of the matter is, if you're in Christ, you have died you might, you, maybe you just don't realize it. You don't feel like it. The great Bible teacher and pastor and theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones gave a powerful analogy on this very thought one day. When he gave the analogy of a former slave, he said, he, imagine a former slave after the Emancipation Proclamation. He's free. But he didn't necessarily feel free. And so when he would come upon his former master, he would suddenly be shake with fear and even be inclined to obey his master if his master told him to do something. But he didn't have to obey him. The power of his former master had been broken. 
And so it is with you and me who know Jesus as our Savior. The power of sin that has captivated you and still captivates many of you has been broken. You just don't realize it, but you should. Are you free? Then look back. Don't let your past be a hitching post, but a guidepost in your life. As you worship the one true God who delivered you from your sin. Do you want to be free to worship God? Then secondly, refuse. Refuse to worship other gods since there aren't any other gods. True freedom. Again, I I referenced Paul on Mars Hill, preaching to those Stoics and Epicureans, reminding them at the end that God will judge them by Jesus Christ and righteousness. It was when he showed up there in, in Athens, the Bible tells us that he saw there were gods everywhere. In fact, they tell us that back in the day, you're, you're more likely to bump into one of these gods than you were a person. They were everywhere. And Paul says, I'm, I'm noticing all your objects of worship. Oh my goodness, you even have an altar to the unknown God. The unknown there is the Greek word we get our word agnostic from. Think about how exhausting it would be to worship dozens or hundreds or thousands of gods you'd never know if you were pleasing the right one. So Paul takes him to the one true living God because there aren't any other gods. But notice what he says in the first commandment, verse two, you shall have no other gods, what? Before me. The word before literally means over against me or you could translate it next to me. And that illustrates how we rack up gods. It was John Kelvin who said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. We just keep manufacturing idols. We have no problem, many of you right here, you have no problem giving your allegiance to the one true God so long as you can keep a few others close by. The word before could also be translated in opposition to, which is, of course, what all other false gods, which aren't gods anyway, do. They're always in opposition to God. Ultimately, when you and I embrace idols, anything that detracts you from your walk with God, and it could be a myriad of things. If I start listing them, it's a never-ending list. The things that you're utterly devoted to that detach you from God. Their very nature, I want you to know, is to nudge God out of the picture. That's what they do. They just nudge him out. The New Testament has a word for this. It's, it's the word antichrist. You say, well, I thought that was a person. It is, but it's also, it, it's also a, a, a way of living. The prefix anti doesn't just mean against. It means instead of. And this is what the devil does. He brings things. He knows he can't get rid of the one true God, so he just brings other idols in instead of him to nudge him out. That's why I've said before, you, we never really fall out of love. Nobody falls out of love. You just fall in love with something else or someone else when it comes to idols. And here's the reality. There are no other gods. Just say it together. There are no other gods. Say it again, there are no other gods, just cheap imitations of the real one.
Isaiah put it best, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. If you want freedom, real freedom, you need to refuse to worship other gods because after all, there aren't any other gods, only cheap imitations. Thirdly and finally, resist making an image of God since God already has one. I say resist on purpose because it is, it's, it's in our nature to see that which we worship. We want to see it. I've had numerous conversations over the years with individuals. And let me ask you, as you were singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, were you envisioning God? Were you picturing him? Were you trying to picture who God was, who Jesus is? If you were, that's a form of idolatry, even though you didn't probably realize it. The second commandment, verse 3, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in earth beneath or what is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now here's the irony. Just before God created man, he said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Genesis 1.26. It's thoughts like this that led Mark Twain, you know, always with a you know, with the tongue in his cheek or whatever. He said, God created man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. Just think about that for a minute. That's what we do. We return the favor and try to create our own image of God. We need to be freed from the attempts to envision God. By the way, a little side note, but an important one. Protestants and Catholics part ways with the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. And not many people know this. And here's what they do. Roman Catholics fold the no graven image part here with the first one. They take the first two and they fold it into one commandment so that they don't have to deal with the graven images. You say, well, wait, I'm not a rocket scientist, but if they do that, it only makes nine commandments. No, they took care of that. At the very end, you know where it says, don't covet? It says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. They make that two commandments. That's how they get the 10. And that way, they don't have to deal with this very, very clear passage of Scripture that says, no images, And as a former Roman Catholic, I know what they'll tell you. Well, we don't actually worship those images. Let me tell you something. I don't know if they're worshiping them or not, but they're bowing down before them, and we're particularly told not to do that. Now listen. We get our... Listen to this. We... Are you listening? We get our concept of God either by imagination or revelation. That's it. You get your concept of who God is either by imagination or revelation. I like revelation better. 
But that, because that takes the limits off. So in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, when he starts to describe us and our sinfulness, he says, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them through his invisible attributes. They're clearly seen. He says, but professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they started creating images. That's what man does. Any image of God, listen to this, any image of God, physical or imaginary, will limit who he is, just by definition. He's, he's the unlimit. you can't limit God, amen? And if you're in the five-day Bible reading thing, praise God, you're, you're already over halfway done. The five-day plan, you just read this recently, right in the middle of his dedicatory prayer of the temple, here's what Solomon writes. He says, but will God dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less the house that I've built? That's good theology there. Solomon recognized that you can't, I'm making this temple for you, God, but come on, seriously, you are God. Even the highest heaven cannot contain you. I got a, somebody sent me a couple of different people in stereo, sent me a video, a, a, a video that went viral here this last week of a, of a, of a pastor of a small church who, who was passing, he's saying, America's facing persecution. Persecution is coming. I have, I have, I'm getting dreams, direct dreams from God. I'm hearing the voice of God. Yes, I know the voice of God. Well, say no more. I don't need the Bible anymore. I'll just listen to this dude. And somebody who sent it to me said, hey, what do you think of this? I said, I'll tell you what I think of this. Jeremiah 23, verses 28 and 29, that's what I think, where Jeremiah said, let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream. Let him who has my word speak it faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat? Is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that shatters the rock? I'll take the word over somebody's dream every day and six times on Sunday. I've always loved the fact that God never gave us an image to worship. The pagan nations of Bible times delighted in defeating their enemies. And when they would do it, they would rip down their statues and break them up. We're seeing some of that today for other reasons. But they would delight in it because can you imagine anything, the only thing more humiliating than defeat and even loss of life amongst your armies was to see your great idol be ripped apart. Now, don't get me wrong. The Jews, if you read your Bible, they, they suffered many a humiliating defeat. Armies decimated, many thousands killed. But one thing they never suffered was the image of their God being destroyed by their enemies. You want to know why? Because there wasn't one. He never gave them an image to worship. No graven images. As a new Christian, I remember being astonished, absolutely astonished at the plainness 
of these sanctuaries I started walking into. I'd see a, I'd see a wooden cross or, you know, but I didn't see, I, didn't, I was so used to the stained glass, the, the images, the statues, you know, the altar, all the ornate stuff, the frescoes and on the, on the ceilings of God, you know, Michelangelo with God's finger reaching down to man and man's finger reaching up to God. That's bad theology, by the way. God doesn't tell man, I'll meet you halfway. God saves us, amen? He comes down to us. But I, I was just sort of astonished at the plainness of gospel-centered churches. And, and then I realized quickly that we walk by faith, not by sight. Listen, God doesn't need an image. He's already got one. He doesn't need an image. He's already got one. You are the image of God. This is the great mystery of it all. You're not, you're not allowed to make an image of God in your mind or physically, but you are expected to be the image of God. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image by the Spirit of God from one level of glory to the next. God sent the Son of Man because the sons of men kept destroying their God-given, image-bearing responsibility. And we're still doing it. We're still destroying it. We're killing unborn babies. We're honoring dishonorable things and lifestyles while breaking every commandment on the list. So God sent one who would keep all his commands, love all the children, and exhibit all of his righteousness. And aren't you glad? And even after hanging out with his best friends for three years, and on the night before he died, no less, Philip, one of his friends, said, you know, Jesus, just show us the Father, and that'll take care of everything. Remember what Jesus said? How long have I been with you? If you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. In essence, Jesus was declaring his deity. He was declaring, I am the perfect image of God. So God did, after all, provide the world with an image of himself. And we destroyed it. We killed it. We broke him. And here's the double irony. It was the destruction of God's image in Jesus that will save you. That's the irony of it all. The one image God gave us of himself, we killed. But you can't keep God down, amen? He rose from the dead. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledge your sin, and turn to him. You can be a free, real worshiper of the living God. Do you want that? You can have it, and I hope you will. Let's pray. God, thank you for the perfect image of yourself in the Son of Man, 
the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And what did we do with the one image you gave us? We broke it. We busted it. We killed it. We killed him. And Lord, and yet we did it, and yet he came to lay his life down for us that he might rise again and we might trust him. Dear friend, if that's you, if you're out here right now thinking, I, I am a, the culprit. I am the one who destroyed God's own image. You're in good company. I did too. And if your heart is broken over your own sin, turn to Jesus and believe in him today. And for those of you who know Jesus, remember, God doesn't need you to make an image of himself. You're to be the image of him as Christ continues to mold his own image in you in your walk with him. May it be true of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.